running a healthcare company has to be one of the most demanding jobs you could choose. It's a dynamic and challenging industry. There are scientific advances to keep up with, insurance and government regulations to navigate, and relentless competition to overcome. My guest is at the helm of one of the biggest ships in the healthcare sea. Rosalind Brewer runs the giant retail pharmacy company, Walgreens Boots Alliance, with stores across the United States and the United Kingdom. Roz took the job after being second in command at Starbucks. Before that, she worked for Sam's Club, a division of the Walmart Corporation. Welcome to Deep Purpose, a podcast about courage and commitment in turbulent times. I'm Ranjay Gulati, a professor of business administration at the Harvard Business School. If you take the view that healthcare is a basic human right, being the CEO of a place like Walgreens takes on dimensions you just don't see in other business sectors. One dimension is simply helping people understand their health and their healthcare. We have people walk into the pharmacy and they'll say, this drug is way too expensive, it's $40. We explain to them that probably that drug is probably $400. And there's so many other steps along the way that's reducing that cost to get them to $40. But the reality is 40 is too much in some communities, right? And so how do we get that $40 drug to either be a generic so that we can then pass the best cost on to the to the patient and the consumer. And so we work very hard in terms of you know the conversations we have in Washington we are actually doing everything we possibly can to pull down our costs so that we can deliver the best cost position. But then also, too, there's an education piece in terms of how we can get involved in, in you know, preventative care as well, uh, because uh, the cost of health care, it is, it is very fragmented. Um, when I think about you know, the times I've had to work on cost initiatives, there are probably two or three levers to pull. In healthcare, there's probably 10 or 12. And so we have to um, think about this is this is the plight of of WBA is to create these really unique partnerships, partnering with our distributors, partnering with, you know, these physician practices coming together like we're doing with Village MD. And, you know, this is at least providing access and we'll have to continue to work on it in terms of how we get the best, you know, access to the consumers. And that's that's our position. That's what we're working on. We believe that if you begin to use things like our health advisor, um, you begin to take care of your health a lot better. And maybe the question won't be the cost of, of the drug because you'll be healthier in, in the end. And so I think, you know, there's a lot of work to be done here. It's a battle every day in healthcare to really get in that sweet spot of doing right and, um, you know, hitting the right profit position as well as the best position you want for the community. It's a struggle, but we're, this is our plight. We're, we're working on it as strong as we can. Under Ross Brewer's leadership, Walgreens Boots Alliance has invested more than $6 billion in Village MD. It's a national chain of 250 primary care clinics. The new venture is called Walgreens Health. Yeah, so it's been exciting for the company to think about what's next. Um, I think we realize that um, we've done a fantastic job in the area of retail pharmacy. This entire organization is uh, charged to get behind what's next, right? And at some point, we, you know, we have to face the music that retail pharmacy is just not enough for us, you know, in the long haul. 
I will tell you that the, the organization is excited about something new. And, and here's what we need to understand about WBA. We've had these relationships for quite some time. We've, um, our, this is an advanced relationship we have now with Village MD. We invested in them initially several years ago. When I am amongst my healthcare peers, they're super excited about localizing healthcare. If you think about all the others that are in healthcare, can you really localize healthcare? And this is the, our distinct advantage is taking that pharmacy relationship because you know understand that many Americans, their relationship with their pharmacist is much stronger than their relationship with a primary care physician. They see them more frequently, they consult on the use of meds frequently, and they can access them right away without a phone call or an appointment. And so there's something to be said about that as the engine to start this work to get healthcare directly to the consumer. So I don't, I, I, I don't think it's that much of a leap of faith. We have 9,100 stores. A good portion of them, probably 50% of them, are in medically underserved communities. We can bring healthcare local to the patient and our customer. And when you think about, we have all of your information from a pharmacy perspective and the relationship that our cons- our customers have built with our pharmacists, adding Village MD and a primary care physician, adding a health corner, which is a health advisor, and then having that local and also having neutrality, we do not have the relationships that some other uh, pharmacy retailers have. So in terms of all different insurance plans, our Village MD units accept all of them. So the point of neutrality, we're going to leverage that. We're going to leverage our stores. We're leveraging the digital nature of our business that we've already built in. And then we're bringing it right to the patient so that they can care for themselves. The whole goal is to improve health outcomes. And we think by providing access and understanding I think we're doing the same thing that happened in retail probably 10 or 12 years ago. So there's a lot of similarities here and things that we can leverage from my learnings as a retailer. We are um, creating relationships with companies across the, the, the United States. You think about our relationship with Blue Shield of California. And so, you know, we are creating, we built um, our healthcare units with them and we we just put in 10 new uh, units of health corners in, in their areas. We're building more. We'll have 3,000 of those health corners and we'll have health advisors in our buildings and Blue Shield of California will be behind it. So it's really interesting what you can do if you take advantage of your, um, of your assets and that's what we're doing. Walgreens Boots Alliance's purpose, to inspire more joyful lives through better health. In the midst of this kind of pretty significant strategic initiative on your part, you also decided to kind of do a take on the purpose itself. And I loved the way you came out with the words you did, more joyful lives through better health. And I'll tell you why I loved it personally, because most of healthcare is about illness, not wellness. We get paid for illness. We don't get paid for wellness. So tell us a little bit more about why coming up with this kind of a purpose mission statement was so critical for you so early in your tenure um, as CEO. Some of it is is personal. Um, if you've ever been a caretaker for a family member and you can see how arduous a task it is to care for someone, either in their final days or at the worst moments of their um, health experience, you know, you can see how tough it is. And they're not joyful days, but there could be. 
right? And if you had the right access around you, um, you could turn this situation into something that, you know, was workable. So I, I took a look at this and we did as a team because we know that usually when a patient is diagnosed, the first thing they do is take their prescription to the pharmacist. And that's where they're really at the point of realization that I have something happening to me. And they have a, a consultation. And we know how important it is for our customer service model to respond to that. So first and foremost, we're usually that first person. But then you talked, you made the reference to wellness. What we would really like is that let's have these conversations before you are diagnosed. And so this wellness piece allows us to talk about the mental well-being of all of us. It allows us to get ahead of issues. For some of the communities we serve, we're really clear on the social determinants that affect them. One of the areas that we are constantly thinking about is obesity. And so are there things that we can do to have a healthier offering in our stores so that we make our contribution to a healthier lifestyle? through what you put in your body. And so those are the kinds of things we're beginning to think about. And remember this vision for us, it's a long-term vision, right? And this is, this is what gets us charged because this isn't meeting next quarter. This is our long view. And so imagine, you know, the work that we plan to do with reformatting our stores and making sure that we have the right offering in our stores. So getting to that wellness piece, hopefully we'll, we'll curtail some of these less than happy moments in people's lives. I totally agree with you that purpose can give an organization a sense of a compass, an orienting framework on their long-term vision of where they're trying to go. It's also a way to communicate with other stakeholders about that's our purpose, this is who we are. But purpose, when you activate it inside your organization all the way down to the front line, that can be another energizing element of purpose where people feel connected to it. But, but getting it there is hard work. Getting it to frontline people who say, that's a corporate speak. How are you thinking of that next piece of the puzzle, which is activating it at the frontline? It's probably best that I give you some examples here, Ranjay, because the way we are getting our organization ingrained and aligned behind this purpose is to make decisions through the intent of the purpose. I'll give you an example. We're looking at our benefits package right now. And if I look at our benefits package, it's not living up to our mission, right? And so um, I would tell you that I would love to see the day where we have more support for mental health in our benefits package. I would like to see the day that, you know, we provide uh, flexibility in care and being able to take care of extended family members, because we know that that's part of uh, what happens in all of our lives is we act as caretakers. We need leave of absence, you know, to do those kinds of things. So we're making those decisions. And when my team brings me something that doesn't live through that, I decline it and say that doesn't fit with our mission and values. And it's interesting because they're like, but no, this is this is best cost. You know, everybody's doing this now. I don't want what everyone's doing now. We're going to, you know, fight for the future. I didn't ask for a cost initiative. I asked for this to, you know, meet our mission and values. And so in some instances, people are like startled by it. They're like, you know, you're going to forego a cost benefit for this. And absolutely, in many cases, we'll have to do that. And so um, it's it takes a balance, but it takes us living through it and making our decisions based on who we want to be. I bring it up because, you know, I have a niece who works as a cashier in the Walgreens. She's been doing it for at least 15 years. She loves her job. She loves going to work. 
she doesn't have to work, but she chooses to go to work. And every time I speak to her, she just feels it. the work itself gives her so much fulfillment. So I f that's what I was wondering, that you take a statement like this and that would, when internalized, can make work even more meaningful. Absolutely. I love to hear stories like that. And when I'm in stores, I try and um, walk and live the values of the company and engage you know, our frontline cashiers. And I think, you know, a lot of our leaders do that. And sounds like your family um, member has realized what we're trying to do here. Like all of us, business leaders are shaped by their life stories. Roz Brewer points to her upbringing as her source of inspiration, her drive to succeed. Roz is one of only two black women to lead a Fortune 100 company. She grew up in Detroit in the 1960s and 70s. Her folks were assembly line workers at General Motors. My parents had migrated from the Southeast, from the state of Alabama to Michigan. And it was part of that huge industrial migration in, in pursuit of employment and to gain a different lifestyle. Neither of my parents went to college, so this was really important for them. So it really brought something into our household. And it was a strong sense of family because as they both migrated, they brought loads of family with them, right? I think about how I relocate now. I just grab my my family and move, but these are siblings and families that migrated together. So first of all, strong sense of family. The second thing I would tell you is hard work ethic because they did not have a college degree. They had to find those jobs that, you know, allowed them to develop on the job, right? And so my parents both learned skills in the automotive industry. Um, my dad eventually became a manager and, you know, had a, a, a management position and it was interesting to watch all of that happen. So I think it instilled family values with, to me, with me and hard work ethic. Your next part of your journey was really around going to Spelman College. And I know it has a special place in your heart for you. How has Spelman helped you develop as a leader? What were the kind of things you learned there that really have allowed you to really evolve as a leader and be where you are? So during my time at Spelman, you know, understanding that Spelman is an all women's college, historically black college, it was interesting to be amongst my peers that looked just like me. So I, I learned a few things in that, mostly all about myself, because I saw myself in so many other people. The other thing I would tell you is that when you're amongst someone, you know, this very tight knit group. Um, we're very frank with each other. And so um, it wasn't uncommon for one of my Spelman sisters to tell me exactly when I made a mistake or exactly when I did something wrong. And then the other thing I would tell you is that when you're around what I call your people, right, you have this sense of pride and not wanting to disappoint them. The other thing I will tell you is that the professors, the faculty, the staff there, they acted almost as a parent, a counselor, and a professor. And I felt like they would not let me fail. And, you know, the classroom size was small enough where they would look me in the face. They knew when I was probably not doing my best or maybe distracted because, you know, maybe I went to an event, a party the night before, you know, but they would tell you those kinds of things, but they would re-engage you. And so I felt a real strong of caring and nurturing in that environment. 
And it was such a time of great change. I lost my dad while I was in college. My parents, I was, uh, you know, with four of us in college at one time. I understood my parents' financial struggles at that time, you know, being 19, 20 years old, you get it at that point. And so at that point of a lot of change in your life, I felt like I had a really nice warm blanket around me, either from the Sisterhood of Spelman or the faculty and staff that was there. So I learned a lot. So here's an unfair question. We're going to talk about purpose later on, but as a young college graduate, did you have some sense of purpose as to what am I going to do in this world? Why am I here? Uh, did you start to discover kind of for even as an early level, at a basic level, like what do I going to do with myself? Yeah, Spelman is in southeast Atlanta, and it is in a, an environment where there is a lot of Section 8 housing. And so when you come into the gates of the college, it's actually very pristine and beautiful. But outside the gates, they're very, very much an underrepresented community. And many of us would work in the community in the evening hours because there were children that needed to be tutored, uh, single parenting, uh, those kinds of things. And we all chipped in and we took care of the neighborhood. And so I had not seen that growing up in Detroit, quite honestly. I mean, I lived in a neighborhood. It wasn't pristine or perfect, but I definitely had not seen that level. But I was in it and uh, I did a ton of work in the community there. And it stuck with me very hard because it was sort of in my head. I'm inside the gates being educated, but those outside the gates look like me, but they're uneducated and they need help. And that stuck with me for a very long time. Another life experience that shaped Ros Brewer as an industry leader goes back to her family and the healthcare challenges they faced. I am the youngest of five and we're very close knit as a family. I think about when, you know, we've lost both of our parents now, but the care for them towards the end brought us together as a family. And it's interesting how difficult those situations were to manage with even all the means that we had between, you know, my siblings and I. And being in this healthcare um, environment right now, I mean, I've actually had to live it. And it makes me think about, I don't want anyone else to have to go through what I did. And then I think about, I actually had the financial means. What about those individuals who don't have the financial means and don't understand the system and can't, you know, make a phone call or lean on a friend in a very high power position to help get care for your family? You know, when I thought, Ranjay, about leaving Starbucks and coming into the healthcare industry, I thought to myself, why am I doing this? But I think it is something that had festered in me very early on as I saw my parents go through things and, and caring for them, that this is the legacy that I want to leave is to see how well you know, I can create impact, create noise in this industry to make, you know, new partnerships happen. I'm spending quite a bit of my time talking to legislation on how this might be able to change. And it does stem from my lived experience. You know, I could have come in here and become the retailer that I know how to do so well, likely with my eyes closed. But this is a challenge for me to learn something new. But I think I've learned enough in the industry that I, I, I hope I grab some good ear from people on this. And um, I'm having some good conversations and trying to mobilize a different healthcare industry for the United States. Are there any people in your career or moments in your career that really touched you and have shaped you as a person, you know, either at Sam's or at Starbucks that you say, you know, these were either a moment or a person who really gave you a moment to think about and really was formative for you? There's probably been a couple of those. 
my sponsor at Walmart was Mike Duke. And here's an interesting thing. Mike Duke and Indra Nui had a very close relationship. And Mike was sponsoring me through the company. And he knew what my gaps were. He introduced me to Indra. Indra invited me to her office. And within 10 minutes, she shut the door. She knew everything about me. She had studied my background. And she helped me understand what I was up against, right? And that was so impactful for me to see, first of all, how networks happen. Started with the white male who grew up in Fayetteville, Georgia, right? Extended to one of the leading CEOs in the country at the time, Indra Nui. Indra Nui, a very busy CEO, took the time to learn about me and share something with me. And then she never left me alone. Um, Indra will drop me a note. She'll see something. She'll do something. And it really said to me how important networks are, how important mentoring and sponsoring are, but also too how much she cared and continues to care even in her lifestyle. And, and quite honestly, we had some things in common um, because of our career in CPG, um, but then our lifestyles were different. So for me, that was very impactful to know how much intentionality was there. And um, we're still very, very good friends today. Ross Brewer leads a company under tremendous social pressure to do what's right. For instance, how do you get paid for keeping people healthy? The entire American healthcare system is designed to compensate for illness, not wellness, adding to the complexity extensive government regulations and partisan political battles over how much government should be involved in healthcare. For Ross Brewer, having a deep purpose is an essential compass in navigating such a difficult market. It is a difficult balance, particularly in this environment right now where, you know, we have uh, labor issues and shortages where they are and you want to motivate people to come back into the workplace. I will tell you that I have seen time and time again, my experience at Walmart, my experience at Starbucks, that when people are purpose-driven, they tend to run through a wall for you. People want to know that their work is going to count for something greater than just delivering the profits. I think profits are an outcome of doing the right thing. One of the things I talk to my team about each and every day is, is doing the right thing in terms of how we make decisions. And when we do the right thing on behalf of the customer and our patients, that will create profits. Now, it is a careful, a very careful structure. So, you know, understanding business very well. I look at our business in terms of a portfolio. There are some areas that we will make money and so we'll concentrate on those. And so I look at, I've, I've always done this, is to look at the portfolio and say, where's my money being made? And that's the area that I'm going to push. And then there's other areas where I've got to meet the purpose of the company. And so, you know, one of the things we're working on right now is leveraging our core business, which is our retail pharmacy business. And so we're doing a lot of automation of everything that happens behind the counter in the pharmacy. And that does two things. One, we're not going to eliminate jobs from it. What we're going to do is make the pharmacist's job easier for them, right? Because they are professionals. They are trained. They are educated. I want them to operate at the top of their degree, and that is interacting with the customer. When they interact with that customer, because I've taken all the paperwork from them, that will turn profits because that customer will come back. And so 
there are those kinds of things where you have to understand your business really well before you make these drastic means to be purpose-driven. You have to understand your business model. And it's interesting that I've found that some people don't really get their business model real well. And they go right to purpose. And that's where that's where the breakdown happens. How do you think about unhealthy products, you know, cigarettes or junk food? And and those are, are tough decisions because you can't overnight walk away sometimes from things like that. But how does one even put them into your purpose calculation? I learned this at Walmart is that you can try to remove sugar and salt from the front of the store and you'll lose a lot of your customers because people are flexitarians. They eat Cheetos at night and cucumbers during the daytime. We used to joke about that all the time. So it's both. And so you have to know your customer well. In certain geographies, there is both. Um, If I were in a certain area um, of town, you know, I would be able to express a little bit more healthy for you. But you've got to understand your consumer in that respect. But understand, too, that people are flexitarians. Now, there are some areas where you have to really pull some hard triggers. We've been really clear about what we want to do from a healthier standpoint. Tobacco is a problem. Tobacco is not where we want to be. Um, It sends a bad signal. So these are the things we're working on to make sure that we're living through, you know, what we really want to do here but it's a balance. I want to talk about leadership with you, Roz, because I've heard you talk about leadership. Uh, You talk about next level leadership and listening, acting, and making people feel heard in the workplace. Tell me a little bit about what you see is going to be necessary for leaders in the coming decades now, because we are facing tremendous uncertainty and change around us. What are you hoping for and what have you learned? Through the pandemic and the social unrest in this country, I remember making those statements about next level leadership. And now uh, I've begun to think, what's that next, next level? Because that's not really good enough anymore, just to listen and, and react. I think people want to be heard and and felt and seen. And there's not only, you know, in our environment right now, the wealth gap. I think there's also just a gap in, in, in just really understanding what motivates people. I look at my new hires and my young hires, my early college graduates, and it's hard for them to see a road from who they are right now to where someone in my position is, right? They want to be able to bring more than just their whole self to work. They want people around them that actually are like them. And it's not that a Black person wants a Black person next to them. A Black person wants a white person next to them who understands them. And so even when I look through the vernacular of looking at diversity numbers, that's not good enough. We need our leaders and our companies to reflect what's happening in the world. They've got to be in touch. And when we see this disparity between a young new hire wanting people to understand what happens in their daily life um, and to ask them, what, what did you do on the weekend is just not enough. But to understand when they said that they've done something that's, that you've never seen before, that you're actually interested in it, right? And so as we hire, we can't just look at numbers anymore and say, what's my you know, numbers between um, you know, race diversity and gender diversity? It's diversity of thought and the way we treat people, the way we see and hear and listening, and it's how we want to pattern ourselves. And so we have to think more about this because, you know, our future generation of leaders 
they're impatient uh, with intolerance. They're not having it for one second. And I think that's part of the fallout we're seeing right now in terms of employment in the United States. Strong leadership is not just a top-down proposition. Yes, a commanding officer needs to lead the troops, but effective leaders also guide one another and look to one another for guidance. As the rare black woman in a top role in corporate America, Roz Brewer has been called on by her colleagues to advise on diversity, equity, and inclusion work. One of the things that I try to do as much as I possibly can is to teach and train and develop even even my peers. You know, other CEOs have called me and asked me about my experiences and, and, you know, particularly around when the George Floyd incident happened, you know, what, what would I do and, and how would I think about it? And I will exhaust my every schedule just to respond to them, to help them understand how to deal with this. I'm so glad that they're making the phone call because I can remember times in my career where a phone call wouldn't have happened. They would have made a knee-jerk decision, but people are seeking to understand. I think, you know, Ranjay, I look forward to the day where there's much more conversations happening between these differences, right? So that people are not so impatient with each other and that they give each other grace. People are trying to learn. And so I'm an optimist. I know that. But I think that there is a time for us to listen and learn and, um, and not be so quick to judge. One of the things you've talked about also is the making Walgreens the best place to work. In this talent war we're facing right now, where it's so hard to find talent, what are some things that you are imagining doing to really make it a thriving place to work, where people want to come to work? You're right. Um, When I think about uh, regrettable losses and I sit with those individuals, never is a question around pay or benefits. It's usually about what kind of work they were engaged in. What I really enjoy doing is to make sure that the company and the teams understand the biggest problems we're trying to solve and to have those conversations at the lowest levels of the organization. It is always interesting to me when I walk into a store and I get to meet some of our uh, frontline employees, they'll say, we get this inventory in every day and it comes every Tuesday or Wednesday, but that's not the day that our schedules are aligned, right? So we have these conversations around what what decisions are we making at the top that's impacting these people that have to manage the day-to-day? But then I turn it around and engage them and say, well, we're working on an inventory management system. And then they'll say to me, well, have you thought about this, right? And so it's that engagement at the lowest levels. Never underestimate taking a big problem to your frontline teams because they actually know much more about the execution of it and the reality of it. And then the engagement grows. But just take that in a different vein. Bringing in, you know, new, I would say, mid-level managers into the company and giving them the biggest problems to solve, they love that. That's the energy that they want. They know that their brain is being counted on for. We go to them for the answers instead of having it come top down. So, Roz, I know that, you know, you evolved as a leader in your professional career and your personal life as well. How would you describe your own purpose today? And I realize it's it's a lifelong journey. My purpose is a dynamic thing. I don't know about yours. Mine has migrated over the years. It's been dynamic. I think for me, um, I think about my ability to touch the lives of so many people. I've worked in large organizations, and I think that's been an intent of mine because I think if I want to make change happen, I need scale. So for me, I want to, um, you hit on a point for me, Ranjay, about 
what's happening in terms of the misunderstandings of, of people. I think the more I can talk and get the message out there to help people bridge these gaps, I think we need to focus on things as really important as this wealth gap is really keeping us apart. I believe, secondly, I think the, the gap in understanding between our differences is there. So I do take every advantage I can to talk about, you know, this little murky middle in diversity initiatives that's keeping people apart. And then third, I think, you know, being able to talk about growing large companies and what that takes and making sure that I don't land on profit in all of my conversations. It's, it's tough to do when you're, when you're a CEO, but I think right now my purpose is around helping people dispel these misunderstandings so that we can come together and build large, you know, success factors that stem from who we are as people, what we want to do for our communities, but actually building strong companies. One of the things you've talked about is bringing your whole self to work. And I actually, in my research for this article on what do your black executives really want, heard a number of them tell me that they never want to bring their whole self to work because they have to wear a mask. And they feel that they have to be somebody else at work, that they really can't bring their whole selves to work because people around them don't really want to know their whole self. They're not interested in their whole self. So they actually resisted this phrase with me on a number of occasions. But you transcended it. Somehow you felt that you could bring your whole self to work. Tell me more. I regret to hear that um, because, you know, it, it makes me think about have we really become that much of a stalwart that we can't embrace people's differences? You know, what I would say is that it does take a sense of confidence uh, to do that. But I just hope they would hang in there because my stress level went down tenfold when I began to be the same person at work and the same person at home. They must be living an extremely stressful life. I don't know how they do that. Um, I have to be able to come to work and talk about my family and the things that we do that don't look anything like what I know my peers are doing, right? I tell people how I prepare my Thanksgiving dinner. That sounds like something small, but the times that I've done it, People have looked at me like, are you crazy? Do you all really do that? Right. And so, you know, it's those kinds of things that I hope, I hope that changes. That's, that's very disappointing for me that, that they feel that way. There's this gap in between who they are and where they work every day. But then I hope that they do find their place because there are companies that will accept them as they are. And I hope they don't fall out of the workplace. On that note, let me turn to what I, as a question that you've been asked a lot is that as one of two African-American women to lead a Fortune 500 company, which to me is in and of itself highly problematic, do you feel you're under more scrutiny and attention and that you have more to prove that, you know, people are looking to see where you're going to take this company? Yes, I do think that I'm under more scrutiny than the average you know, some people look at it as a novelty, you know, to say, oh, let's see what she's going to do. Does this does this model really work? Having an African-American female leader at a Fortune um, 100 company, you know, I do think that. The one thing I don't do is to make decisions to prove them right or wrong. Um, I push that way back in, in my decision making because that will absolutely create disaster for me. Um, I have to do what's right for the company. Um, I understand my shareholders well, but I understand what I have to do for the people who work here. 
And that's what I'm committed to do. So I'm not trying to live through it. I don't let it impact my decision-making, but it's absolutely there. I, I feel people watching me through a different vernacular than they've watched other, other leaders. It happens frequently. You have talked in the past about naysayers who question your capability and wonder why you're here. You've never let that phase you. You've kind of walked right through it. How do you do that? I feel like I have been prepared for this. Um, if you look at my background, I mean, I started off as a scientist. I worked in manufacturing and operations. I've done m I've, you know, transitioned one company from another, which is not easy. Um, I've run transformations and then I've scaled large projects. When I look at that, if you peel my name off of my resume and put on, you know, a more what I will call mainstream name, um, I probably would have been a CEO probably 15 years ago. Um, so that's very clear to me. And then I've sat in meetings and watched decisions being made. I've seen the worst of leaders and I've seen the best of leaders. I know what bad looks like. Um, I'm committed not to be one of those, right? I've seen it. I've seen the impact it's had on companies and organizations. So I try to embody what I think is going to be the success factors for my company. The other thing too, Ranjay, I have to say is that I've lived a pretty uh, selfless life. And what I mean by that is that I've not done these jobs in order to gain the next title or to gain the next income level. Um, if you look at the companies, I've been very deliberate about where I want it to be. And when I didn't want to be there, I made the decision not to be there. And the other thing, too, is I'm very comfortable living a simple life if it ever got to that, right? My purpose in these corporate initiatives have not been um, to for self-prospering. It has actually been to make an impact. And I've been very deliberate about that and un, un, unapologetic about it. And, um, and at some points, it's cost me, right? I've spoken up in meetings where no one else would, and it's cost me in certain areas. But, you know, you bounce back or sometimes you don't. You've been very vocal speaking about diversity, equity, and inclusion. And, and I think you were one of the first to call out the idea that diversity gets a lot of attention. Equity and inclusion don't. That's right. Tell me more about the E and the I, because that was my observation, too, in my own research, that all these young individuals I interviewed said, you know, our company is great at the D, so we have plenty of intake, but then the E and the I don't materialize, and so we have a big hole in the bucket, people leaving. How have you made sense of the E and the I? Because those are tough ones to really understand for a CEO. Yeah, this is where the hard work begins because this is where the E and the I really gets back to the culture piece and what kind of environment you're trying to create for the people that work for you. And I, you know, I feel like I have a little bit of, a, of an advantage. One, I've got a 20-something who's been in corporate environment, went to you know best of schools, all of those things. I listen to his struggles, right? So I've got that advantage. You know, it's data point of one. But I um, have spent a lot of time myself going through the same struggles. And I know it, I feel it. And it's so interesting, Ranjay. I can walk into a room and I'll see a new hire sitting in the room and I can see this fear and intrepidation on their face. And it makes me want to do some very simple things. Take my level of conversation to meet them, right? I try to meet that person in the room that's most vulnerable. And everybody else, take care of yourself. But that's my goal, you know, when I walk into a big setting, because I know if I get it right for that person, the rest of the room will gain from it as well. 
I look at these, you know, our young hires and say, you know, they're scared to ask the question. So I will extend myself to them and, and ask them the question. I'll get to know them. Now I'm one data point, but I have a lot of people watching me. I have a whole team watching how I interact and, you know, I'm seeing them walk it off and sort of pattern my behavior. And I think, you know, um, leaders at my level need to understand just how meaningful that is, how genuine that needs to be. And when you get in these conversations of trying to build a culture of equity and inclusion, make sure that you understand who's in your room, right? And I don't think we do enough. You know, we look at, we're so trained to look at data and numbers. We look at where'd you graduate from, then we put you in a box. We put you in a box when we look at your color, your gender, we put you in a box. And those boxes have diversity within the box. And I don't think we've recognized that. I know that for sure. There's diversity within the Black community. And I think we need to understand that you are now, we are now as leaders going to have to go two or three levels down to understand what equity and inclusion really means, what matters to these individuals that work the hardest for us. And I think it's going to take some time, but we've got to be paid. We've got to stop looking at numbers and get into the environment. It's important that we focus on the culture and that's in walking and living the culture that we want, um, that we think can thrive. One marker of a great leader in any domain, be it business or government or the greater society, is courage. And as Nelson Mandela said, courage is not the absence of fear, it's taking action in the face of fear. I asked Roz Brewer how she thinks about courage. The reason why I am asking our organization to focus on courage is because this is probably one of the hardest business times we've been in in a long time. There's so many trade-offs that could be made at this time. And it's going to take courage because, and, it, and, and also too, Ranjay, our results are going to be factored through a multiple lens. Not only do we do what's right financially, but we've talked about it already, is doing the right thing when no one's watching. It's also really important that courage is emphasized here because some of our outcomes won't look like financial metrics. They won't. They'll look like, you know, we're, we're facing an, uh, a time right now where people are walking out of the corporate environment for nothing, for no jobs. I've not seen that in my career. We have to understand that. And it's going to take courage to really think about the decisions that we make. They're hard. Um, you know, I'll give you some examples. Right now, just thinking about what we just did with vaccine administration and how we saved lives. Now, we did that and we spent a lot of money to get ready for that. And it's interesting because it can affect your profitability. But we made that decision because it was the right thing to do. And we were uniquely capable of delivering that, that work. That took courage for this organization to make the decision that we were going to slow down some innovation that we absolutely needed in this company to deliver vaccines. That took courage. And I don't think it's going to stop here now that we're in an endemic. We have to think about the courageous moves to make differences in this healthcare environment. It's going gonna, it's gonna to take everything we've got. And so I think courage is going to be important because the decisions have really big differentiated you know, outcomes to them. And so we'll be making trade-offs. So courage is going to be very important as we go forward through this next um, time that we're in right now as companies. Rosalind Brewer is the CEO of the retail pharmacy and healthcare company, Walgreens Boots Alliance, headquartered in the suburbs of Chicago. 
Roz leads an organization that is in the eye of the COVID pandemic storm, delivering vaccines, test kits, and other essentials. But her industry is also at the center of where hard economics meets social responsibilities. Roz Brewer is a path-breaking African-American leader who brings her life sensibility and her core purpose to show how her company and others can finally and truly embrace diversity, equity, and inclusion. You've been listening to Deep Purpose, a podcast about courage and commitment in turbulent times. You can go to my website for more of my conversations with leaders in the business world navigating the 21st century business environment. You can also find out about my book titled Deep Purpose. That's deeppurpose.net. This podcast is produced by Stephen Smith with help from Lauren Modelski, Melissa Duncan, Craig McDonald, and John Bath. The theme music is by Gary Meister. I'm Ranjay Gulati.